on today's episode, Running Technique for Elites with Matt Pendola. Welcome to the Run Smarter Podcast, the podcast helping you overcome your current and future running injuries by educating and transforming you into a healthier, stronger, smarter runner. If you're like me, running is life, but more often than not, injuries disrupt this lifestyle. And once you are injured, you're looking for answers and met with bad advice and conflicting messages circulating the running community. The world shouldn't be like this. You deserve to run injury-free and have access to the right information. That's why I've made it my mission to bring clarity and control to every runner. My name is Brody Sharp. I am a physiotherapist, a former chronic injury sufferer, and your podcast host. I am excited that you have found this podcast and by default become the Run Smarter Scholar. So let's work together to overcome your injury, restore your confidence, and start spreading the right information back into your running community. So let's begin today's lesson. The title of this episode's um, probably a bit misleading. I was originally going to call it while running for elites or, you know, have the idea that it is for elites. But really, after getting off this conversation with Matt, it's applying to a lot of runners, recreational, um, no matter what distance. And so, yeah, it's kind of for everyone. And so, sorry about the title being a little bit misleading. Um, So, Matt Pendola is a running coach, a strength coach. He's been working with runners for a very long time, working with very elite runners, um, which he'll talk about throughout the episode. And um, yeah, I was on his podcast, the Relative Run Readiness podcast, a couple of months ago. And after we finished up our recording, he said, oh, um, oh, I was just asking him, what's some really nice running topics you love talking about? He's like, I love talking about like running technique and what I call run stacking, which um, I thought was fascinating. And so reached out to him a couple of weeks ago to set up this call and yeah, turns out his business, his relative run readiness um, online program has just been launched, which is perfect timing for him um, and perfect timing for you guys to hear about it. And so today's episode, we talk about running technique. We talk about this concept of stacking. We talk about um, whether you should change your running technique and the competing theories that are out there. And yeah, it's just a, a very informative talk. And I have had a couple of listeners reach out to me and say, Brody, um, yes, we, we love that it, everything that's evidence-based, we love that, um, you seek out the best available evidence and the research that, that's out there, but sometimes things aren't all evidence-based. Sometimes you have a coaching technique or you have a coaching strategy, or you have these running coaches that are implementing, um, these strategies that they've been using for years and years and have been really effective, but they don't have to necessarily be evidence-based and, it's hard for something like this topic to be evidence-based. And so um, I think self-reflecting on my philosophy, I think I have swung too much into um, only evidence-based stuff, whereas there is a bit of a middle ground between like topics and content that really can't be, or that there's not really a, um, a definitive decision on what the evidence has shown or um there's a particular topic that evidence can't show. And so (laughs) every time someone proposes a a topic for me or proposes what they want to talk about, um, I am very quick to, 
I guess, dismiss it and say, well, there's no evidence for it, so let's not get them on the podcast. But, um, yeah, I think I need a little bit more wiggle room to, to show that we can still have really good informative content um, through experts and through running coaches who have had years and years of experience of working with strategies that are really helpful and that have worked in the past rather than me just dismissing it um, straight away. I don't think we even talk about some content here that isn't evidence-based, but um, is something that I'm mindful of in the future. So thanks for your feedback as well, and I'll be mindful of that moving forward. And so, um, yeah, without further ado, it was a pleasure to have Matt on. Let's bring him on now. Matt Pendola, welcome to the Run Smarter podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me, Brody. It's an honor, really a pleasure. I am a listener and I love that you have me on. It's it's something that was on my bucket list. So thanks for having uh, me, buddy. Pleasure's all mine, mate. For those who aren't familiar with you, can uh, you maybe just describe uh, who you are, where you're from and your profession and how that's developed over the past couple of years? Sure. Yeah. I'll try to keep it uh, short, but I grew up just absolutely loving running and the joy of it. And did end up finding out that I had some ability for it. And so that did take me to a certain level and ran some times I was proud of, ended up uh, being fairly competitive until really injuries started to get in the way. And that's, I suppose, what we'd be talking about today a little bit more. But um, I ended up surrounding myself with some really great coaches and educators. And one of those people was Bobby McGee. And I've worked with him for the last six, seven years now. So he's um, a great running coach and worked with some of the best runners in the world over the years. I've been able to look at how I can utilize or take some of my experiences as a competitive runner myself and start to implement those things into training now with what I do as a strength coach. So what got me involved with being a strength coach was initially because I wanted to help to fix myself, I guess you would say. And um, one thing that I ended up doing is a hot shotting gig for about uh, three years. And when I was doing that, a tree fell on me. I was um, a sawyer. I was cutting a tree down and so crushed my spine on my left side. And I call it tree trauma, Brody, but um, <laughs> <laughs> had to had to really figure that out because now not only could I not run without uh, having some issues and pain, but walking was an issue. So I ended up again, surrounding myself with some pretty great people, some physios that I worked with, guys like yourself that were willing to teach me a lot. And I started learning a lot more. And I just kind of kept following that path. So I am an LMT and also a strength coach. And, you know, some of my background there, for example, I went to Athletes Performance Institute and I spent about four years doing some mentorships there. And, you know, again, just kind of trying to get through a lot of these initial capacity issues that I had as an athlete and realizing that 
this was a big why for a lot of people. The love and joy of running should be something we can all do. And it's not just at that podium level. So in fact, many, many people that I try to help today, uh, they don't really care about podiums as much as they just want to be able to get out there and enjoy themselves and uh, be a part of the culture. So um, you know, hopefully that kind of sums up a little bit more about what I'm about and, and what I do, but um, absolutely love helping people do what they love. And it happens to be something that I love equally, which is running. Nice. And so the runners, I guess, who have gravitated towards working with you, you say a lot of them aren't really striving for podium finishes, but uh, is there a specific type of runner? Are they marathoners? Are they ultras? Are they less than that? Um, what type of runners sort of gravitate towards you? Yeah, well, I, you know, I started off with um, a lot of high school runners, and that was a great learning experience because, of course, a lot of these kids didn't really have too much of a background and it was just something they were getting into and learning to enjoy and to thrive in. And I wanted them to understand that they could run in 10 years from now and 20 years from now, um, you know, their entire lives. So this was something that I took for um, about seven years of my career where I took this journey with these kids and learned, I think actually, more than I ever have about what's what's important and how to start with the basics and build up from there. And then I also started working with Renal Orthopedic Clinic, um, a sports doc there, uh, Dr. Albertson, where I would get a lot of your recreational runners, your masters type of athletes as well that were uh, undergoing various injuries and dealing with capacity issues. So then I started to learn a little bit more about the rehab side of things as well. And, you know, then I also was able to get onto uh, a more elite, I guess you would say, um, atmosphere working with Olympians with Bobby McGee, which getting ready for this Olympics. Now I have about um, six athletes that are going to this Olympics. So I guess what I would say is that all different capacities, all different backgrounds from beginner to the very elite at this point, I've been able to work with Brody. That's great. It's good that you have the experience working with so many different runners as well. And I'm guessing that your approach and your um, strategies that you use are completely different from one runner to the next. In regards to your overall, I guess, training philosophy, is it looking at other running coaches and strength coaches um, do you see a different side of things? Do you take a different perspective or a different training philosophy, uh, philosophy that others, um, might not take? Yeah. You know, that's a great question because I really, I'm looking at my approach being a little bit more about density over volume. And what I mean by that is, you know, working for example, with these elites, they don't really care about the amount of volume they're doing. They, they care about mastering capacity and durability and optimization, these, these type of things. And when I actually look at a lot of runners that are coming to me because they want to finish their first marathon, for example, they're doing a lot of volume. And sometimes I think it's too much too soon. So I think what could be different about my approach is that I'm really looking at mechanical loading, for example, especially when you're talking about strength training, 
versus just piling on the cyclic action, you know, just piling on more and more running, which again, you know, I think that that certainly has its place, but I think that if we can look at density over volume first, then we're doing as much as possible to get as strong as possible to increase our capacity so we can from there continue to grow. Does that make sense? So if you're talking about quality, are you talking like like the density? Are you talking about quality over quantity? Are you talking about just like doing really high quality kilometers or um, other things outside of running like strength training, that sort of thing? Yeah, no. So I am definitely talking about with mechanical loading, for example, to master some of the basics in strength training, which we will certainly get to here today, I'm sure. And I'm also talking about when we go out for our runs, for example, I think that in the beginning, I just want athletes to get out there and be able to do this consistently, kind of building up over a good couple months where they may be used to now running four days a week and spending a good amount of time just building that up, but also doing what I kind of call fractionalized training where they may run for a minute and walk for a minute. And of course, I've heard you talk about this as well. And this is something that I consider to be very high quality running because they can really focus on better quality when they are running for that minute. And there's nothing wrong with continuing to walk and get those benefits, which of course, there's a lot of that stimulus that's going to continue to benefit them. But running for, let's say, 20 or 30 minutes in a row when they're not used to running for more than four or five minutes, I think that can be a little bit daunting, but also we can exceed our capacities a little bit easier that way too. So I want to slowly build that up. So I do think that the volume uh, should get there, but we should just look at that quality of those minutes we're running. So maybe building from a minute of running to uh, two, three, four, five, all the way up to say nine minutes of running with one minute of walking in between as we build up. I think that that can go a really long ways, especially as we're learning to build our uh, strength capacities. So if we want to go longer, we should get stronger for that. And, and that's when I like to incorporate a lot of the things in the gym so that we can build on that. Yeah. And like, it makes me think about, you know, why runners are injured so often and the prevalence of injuries are just phenomenal in recreational runners or just any type of runner compared to say, you know, sporting athletes. And we think of running as a continuous movement, but the amount of loads that go through your body every single step. And if you're doing that continuously for 30 minutes, 40 minutes, the loads can rack up very quickly and can, it's a, it's a, um, uh, exercise that can really tip you into that injury kind of state, or like you, you're saying, exceeding that capacity. Whereas, yeah, if you're breaking up that method into walk runs and you're spreading that load, you're, you're sort of taking it a little bit more of a gradual process. And if you're walking and running, it's still time on legs, but you're just, yeah, dissipating a lot more of that load. So, um, yeah, I guess that density and that quality of training makes a lot more sense now. Um, when I was on your podcast and after we were just about to wrap up, you were saying that you're, you have this concept of stacking and you're talking about this in terms of um, quality of running or assessing a running, uh, assessing a runner. 
can you maybe describe what you mean by stacking and how that would work working with an athlete? Yeah, absolutely. So there's, there's of course, a lot of runners will hear about how important it is that they use their transverse abdominis, right? And they might start to even try to do movements that will strengthen that position, right? So when we, we look at that kind of thing, it's, it's to me, again, a little bit of influencing going on versus education, because I think that when we talk about our core and we talk about that deep musculature that helps to support our spine. And we of course know that that's so important. Our, our body wants to always support the spine. It makes sense that we work on that transverse abdominus. But what I think of is more about looking at progression so that we can start with something like our breathing in order to start to incorporate uh, better diaphragmic doming, for example. So when we are in these basic plank positions, for example, I think planks get a bad rap these days because a lot of people are looking at planks as being something that have been maybe overcooked. Like they're trying to hold a plank for five, 10, 15 minutes to see how long they can hold a plank for. But what I initially look at with the plank is, are we able to really hold our position for let's say a good minute or maybe even up to two minutes while we're of course moving an arm and that's the asymmetrical loading that we're trying to achieve. So when we are in a plank position, if you look at, say, for example, a supine plank and we have our elbows behind us and we're just trying to hold our spine in that better extended position, we have a lot of benefits for that. But especially now we can start to even march, right? We can start to move one leg at a time and start to progress that plank so that now we are even say breathing out for a seven count as we are moving our leg and that strong breath out starts to create a little bit more activation so we can look at the internal rotation of the ribs for example kicking in a little bit more as we're breathing out strong and as we start to hit those marching patterns, we start to register if our hips are steering in, a, in the right direction. Or in other words, in this case, we want anti-rotation of the lower spine. And are we able to do that? And if we can do that, then I think we start to move to positions on our feet. So for example, we might go into a pal-off press, right? So this is where we would have, say, a band that's been anchored to the wall and we are holding that band out in front of us. And are we able to just now start drawing out the alphabet with our hands out in front of us with that band tension? And that those movements there are now starting to increase the demand on anti-rotation uh, through the lower spine and the hips as we are getting movement through the upper spine, right? So we're, we're looking at this all as being the body is just a stack of joints. So hence the name stacking, right? So we want to have good mobility, for example, in our thoracic spine, but we want to make sure that we do have good stability in the lumbar spine. And of course, 
this goes all the way down the chain. So we, we want to have good stability, for example, in the knees, and we want to have good mobility in the ankles. And we want to be able to really adapt over a period of time. Let's say we spend a good six weeks or even longer where we're just adapting these positions and really learning to control again, our breathing with these adaptions. And that's why I like to use breathing patterns that are a little bit more controlled and even focusing more on breathing out longer and stronger so that we get a little bit more of that internal rotation of the ribs. In other words, now our ribs are starting to pull down and yet we don't have to think about it. It is something that's automatically happening and, and we're controlling our positions better. So now we start to get into positions, let's say where our arm is over our head and I call it a windless walk, but we would get, let's say up on your big toe is part of that windless mechanism to, to wind up our arches in our foot, for example. And we would start to walk with one arm over our head and that stacking position now, our body really wants to control that position. If we start to lose that, especially if we say, take some light weight, like a kettlebell with maybe say 10% of our body weight, if that kettlebell starts falling back behind us, that doesn't equate very well to being able to walk forward, right? So we automatically want to get into that better stacked position and we can control that pattern. So that would be an example about how we could progress and learn to stack. And that can really transfer to our running. So again, you know, movements can be functional if they're relatable or if they transfer to our running gait in this case. And so to me, it's not about a circus act. It's not about trying to get into all these crazy positions, but really trying to learn a good progression so that we can challenge ourselves to increase our capacity in positions that are relatable to our needs in our running gait. Okay. And so the results of this, of doing this stacking is almost like building a, a foundation. Just quickly chiming in here to let you scholars know, I have just updated my five-day injury prevention challenge. This is one email per day for five days, learning new concepts and diving into the science on how you can reduce your risk of injury. The sign-up link is in the show notes, so fill in your details and I'll be waiting for you in email number one tomorrow. Where the overall result is you're running with, say, better posture or better muscle firing patterns or coordination patterns and being able to do so with a nice like functional breath pattern is that correct yes sir yeah it, i mean you summed it up really well of course brody and um i think that when it comes to progressions that's maybe something that be worth talking about too because uh you know again similar to that runner who's going to go out and run 30 minutes in a row when they haven't built up past five strength progressions are very similar to that. You know, to me, I call it the Miyagi method, right? But you just really starting off with the basics in the beginning and working on the fundamentals. And I 
rarely hear about what kind of breathing patterns we're really focused on when we are doing our strength training. So to me, I want to be able to really own those positions. If I don't own a position, I can't progress, right? So in other words, where I shouldn't progress. So to me, I want to be able to breathe in these positions that I'm loaded in and be able to control these positions. And then when I've kind of optimized these patterns and when I've really maximized what I can get out of it, then it's time to progress to that next movement. So in my previous scenario, a lot of people don't necessarily want to start off with the plank. You know, they'll, they'll want to start off on their feet and doing that windless walk, but are they now flaring their ribs out? Are they starting to lose some of their control and compensate through that movement? Are they actually pushing down into the ground with their big toe or are they spilling their spine and shifting back and forth to do it? Right. So to me, I think that starting with the basics and then really building up incrementally is really key. And most of the time, when I even working again with elite athletes, I think that people would be surprised at how basic they start off in their programs with. In fact, I won't actually work with an, even an Olympian past that, those basic phases if they haven't accomplished and mastered those things first. So we will always start with that regardless of how good of an athlete they are. All right. And if I, I know a lot of runners uh, that are listening to this are doing their strength training and they would be doing planks of various or different variations or say their bridge isometrics or um, those kind of foundation exercises. If they're doing that now and they're listening to this, how could they change their breathing? I know you mentioned longer and stronger without ribs flaring, but anything, any other cues or any other timing um, advice you might have for them while they're doing their planks? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I would say, you know, again, if we look at, I like to do a count, not necessarily timing yourself, but just kind of counting out. If you were to say, start to get into that bridge position. Now let's take just a prone plank and we could have our elbows right underneath us. And now we are breathing out for that seven count. And as we're breathing out for that seven count, we can feel that those ribs are internally rotating. Then we can hold that position. Let's say we hold for a two, three, four count. And then we breathe back in through the nose for a five count. And as we breathe in through the nose, we want to focus, for example, your ribs are going to have to externally rotate so you can get air in, but we're going to focus a little bit more on squeezing our armpits. Okay. So that we keep the traps down, we keep the shoulders from lifting up and we keep bracing with our lats. So in this example, let's say that we're able to do this for a good strong minute. Now we can start to take our levers and instead of having your elbow directly uh, under you, you can start to get those elbows out further in front of you and then still be able to hold that same pattern with now, of course, increased intensity because the lever is longer, right? So that's just an example about how you can use your breathing to match this up. And 
a lot of athletes will come back to me and tell me, man, I've done this kind of stuff for years. I've been programmed into this with my training for years, but I've never done it with the breathing. And I found that it was so much harder to maintain when I had to really focus on these breathing patterns at the same time, which tells me that a lot of compensation was probably occurring without them really even realizing it. I think it's a lot harder to compensate or to cheat the movement if you're really focused on a slower breathing pattern like this, where you have to even say, catch your breath, Brody, you have to be able to reset your breathing. So they'll tell me a lot of times, man, I, I went through that pattern and I had to rebreathe between my movements, which told me that I really was, um, you know, I wasn't as far along as I thought I was. In this case, I really was in need of more intense breathing patterns first. So, you know, again, an, an example about how you can look at density over volume first. And then if we're progressing those and we've built a nice foundation, you're starting to see runners out there running. Is there anything that you look at specifically around running technique, um, anything to do with joint angles or lean or just like their running style efficiency? Um, is there any cues that you might use to change a runner if they are like suboptimal um, working with these runners as a coach? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you know, you want to kind of take into consideration, of course, how long they've been running and, and what kind of compensations might be occurring. And of course, you know, that being said, there are some, some good things that we can look at and we can start to focus on. So for example, with the, the eyes staring or looking forward at the horizon, a lot of people will look at the horizon when they run. And this is something that Bobby McGee uh, taught me. And we looked at a little bit closer with, running form, but rather than the eyes, we look at the chin being about uh, 35, 40 feet ahead. When we, when we look ahead, we're actually looking at the chin and chest being in line a little bit more and not allowing the shoulders to rise up as we run. So, you know, that starts the right effect for our chain a little bit more so that we can control that stacking we've been talking about. So instead of having your abs kind of pull you forward, you're just kind of maintaining that good stack position. And while you're doing that, you're starting to really use a nice compact arm swing. So we, we talk about not breaking the glass tutu with your arm swing, for example. And that's something that a lot of times um, runners will be over rotating with one arm, or they might not be focused on pulling their elbows back enough, right? So a very common that we'll see there is that because they're not pulling their elbows back enough, they're not really setting up that, um, that, that recoil. And because of that, that can affect our RPMs that can affect what's going on with our, our hips. Right. So it's all a chain effect there. So I like to just talk about kind of punching the elbows back as we run. 
and moving in a good arc with our arm swing so that we're, you know, maintaining a little bit better of an elbow angle. And that's something that we want to reach and gather with, with our elbows. So we, we kind of talk about reach and gather with your elbow, almost like when you're pulling along a train track and you would have your elbow pulling along each track. I like to try to use external cues like that, that we can think about so when we use that cue, that tends to help, especially when we say not to, to break the glass too, too. And then, you know, when it comes to the, the foot and the windless mechanism gathering up that, uh, that, that response really that we're looking for where the foot's trying to gather the ground, you know, we want to be able to connect a little bit more. So we want to drive down and we don't really want to think about too much. We just want to think about pushing down into the ground. So, you know, that's another one that I like to use as an external cue a little bit more is to push down. So we get that, we get that feeling. And that's, you know, more again about helping a runner to discover a good feeling for them and a good rhythm as they run. Um, so external cues like that can be good. And because they started off with breathing as an emphasis in their program, always going back to uh, focused breathing so that they can get their mind off of distractions and they can focus on things that are a little bit more organic to them. Uh, does that does that make sense, Brody? Yeah, I, I guess the next follow on question that I have would be, would you use these cues for any type of runner? Would you use it for a new runner, elite, somewhere in between? Yeah, so, you know, it's that's an interesting question because there's plenty of runners that I've worked with where certainly they don't look like, uh, you know, an elite runner and, and most of us don't, and yet they don't really have any problems with their capacities. You know, there's, there's no real injuries popping up and, you know, they're running more recreationally and, and maybe they've even been running for several years. Right. So I don't necessarily try to change any of that. I don't want paralysis through analysis. And I also don't want to create a problem when there isn't one. Um, and then sometimes what it can be is that we have somebody who's trying to now get to the podium or they are dealing with some injuries and some issues there. So that's where I might step in because um, I feel like it's warranted and it's needed. And so it's kind of a case by case basis. And, and I think that when you look at what somebody really wants out of what they're doing, we have to just really look at it with a little bit more of a scope and say, well, this person, they may not have the ideal arm swing, but they're, they're doing just fine with what they've been doing and they've been doing it for 10 years. So I really wouldn't change that. But what I would look at maybe more in the gym, we'll take the arm swing since we talked about that a lot, might look at say doing some suspension rows where we're really working on the serratus interior. We're really working on that muscle that helps to uh, protract the arm, but also, you know, where we're looking at that upward elevation of the scapula and, uh, you know, again, doing things like suspension rows is a great way to start. And then we can graduate even doing things like pull-ups and would that loading 
um, in the runner in those movements, that mechanical loading, would that now start to maybe change some of what we're seeing in their gait without them actually having to think about it, right? So a lot of times I do see that where we will see substantial improvements in a runner's gait because they have worked so much on strengthening their capacities in the gym. And so I think that I don't have to say anything. A lot of times it starts to evolve and we start to and see those improvements in their gait because they are simply stronger to go longer. Yeah. I like that answer because there's kind of two schools of thought. And I think with the, the researchers out there, there's two kind of competing theories around a runner self-optimizing for the body that they have. And if you talk about running efficiency and you talk about running performance, you want to be as efficient as you can, but we know that everyone's bodies are different, different shapes, different ranges of movement, different joints and different like properties in their tendons. And there's one of the theories being that a runner will self-optimize based on the body that they have based on just general feel, just running through a technique. But then there's that other competing theory being like, but we can probably make a few tweaks in order to make them more efficient. And that's why I love that answer that you came up with. It's a case by case basis on the type of runner they, they are and what goals they might have. And if you have a runner who isn't injured, but has come to you for advice and said, I want to get better. I want to become a more efficient runner. There's a lot of ways that we can do that, but you can also change your technique just through trial and error. You can change some arm swings or you can do some more drills and see with that athlete as the individual, whether that um, feels better for them or whether they're getting better performance times and yeah, just working on a case by case basis. I really love that because I'm just thinking of a, someone who say is used to running the same way the entire time. And they've been running the same way for years. And then you give them all these cues about arm swing or like their posture or focusing on like how they push off the ground and they focus on all these things and they get really tired really quickly because they're trying a few different things that the body's not used to, or the body's not optimized for. Um, so they might see, they might be discouraged with those changes. So I think, a uh, a case by case basis is a really nice answer. Do you, um, do you have much thought or much opinion around that um, theory of self-optimization? Yeah, well, I absolutely agree with um, everything that you were saying about self-optimization. And I, I do think that if you have somebody that's just getting started and let's say they're in high school, you know, again, I think that there's some adaptions that take place a little bit quicker. Their nervous systems are like sponges, but they also haven't put in all these miles and, and repetition, repetition, repetition. So in those cases, it can be a little bit easier to change, but I think that sometimes we can do more harm than good by giving cues that that runner just simply, again, doesn't have the capacity for. So, you know, I hear a lot of times these well-intended cues being given by coaches. Um, and the fact is the, the runner cannot hold that position long enough in, in order to be able to really um, benefit from that cue. So if they are getting stronger and let's take, for example, just an anterior pelvic tilt, you know, some, some runners will have more of an anterior pelvic tilt and some, and that can even be a mechanical advantage for, 
for, for speed, for propulsion, right? But if they are doing, say, some movements in the gym that are not really loading the hip flexors and they're working for, on their core. So they're doing, let's say, a frontal plane bridge and they're doing some asymmetrical loading patterns like lifting their leg up and getting back to our breathing scenario. We're breathing out as we lift that leg up and we're holding that leg in the air for a few count and then we're bringing it back down that could really do them uh, a lot of good and we could see that maybe now they're not sitting in the saddle as much when they run but that's because they they improve their capacity to be able to do that and it just feels better now for them to hold this this position that the well-intending coach wants them to hold i think that has to come with time sometimes versus um, let's say somebody who just started out, but also is younger and doesn't have years and years of pattern overload. Yeah. And there's, there's definitely like a, a coordination, like learning the skill when you're first starting out, or if you haven't run for a long time, you're just getting back into it. I think um, a lot of runners can appreciate or perhaps remember when they first started running, how uncoordinated they felt and compared to now when like you say that repetition has built in and that nerve that network of nerves that are finally firing all together in in um in the same order it becomes like a skill it's like a coordination type of skill but then they might get to a certain point where you've been running the same way for for years and then you might see if you can increase your running efficiency by making a few changes here and there and maybe it be arm swing, maybe posture. I know now for me personally, um, I've had like years of like a lot of hamstring overload and only just recently have remembered or had more awareness around um, using a bit of my hip flexors for a bit more of a all round kind of um, swing phase or a bit more of an efficient um, cycle in my, in my gait and I'm feeling heaps better. And so it can get, it can go to show that depending on the individual, depending on their past histories or of overuse or um, yeah, performance that they might have, there are some tweaks that can help for specific runners and what might work for some might not work for others. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that's, that's really well said. And, you know, you know, again, with what I have learned over the last several years about running and looking at my own history with the tree trauma, I explained before, I'm, I'm not going to look like um, Gwen Jorgensen, you know, when, when she runs, I'm not going to look like that, but I have found the, the, the right rhythm and the right coordination that works for me. Um, but I essentially have, uh, the equivalent of a fused spine, right? And so there has to be a good awareness, I think, of what each, uh, individual runner's history is and also, what it is that they're having to tolerate. And sometimes some compensations are necessary um, because really their, their bodies don't maybe have the same mobility or range of motion. And what I've learned, for example, for me is that stretching my hamstrings does more harm than good, <laughs> you know? So yeah. I'm not going to get into um, a lot of static stretching, for example, on my hamstrings that, that, uh, actually tended to bring on more problems back several years ago when that's what I was told to do. Right. 
Mm, very interesting. Uh, if we're on the topic of running efficiency, increasing running performance, is there anything apart from technique that um, we could make, any changes we can make in our training in order to increase our running performance? Yeah, I mean, I think that part of this conversation would have to go towards what that runner's lifestyle is like, what the culture is like, Brody, because, you know, again, I just, I, I'll deal with one person who's an executive, let's say that they are working 50, 60 hours a week and them versus somebody who just retired and they may be different ages, but their recovery needs are completely different. And then you, I talked to another person who just had a new baby girl and those, you know, those things really changed up the game for each individual person. Right. And so what kind of, um, you know, time did they have available to them? What, um, what kind of recovery are they able to get? And, you know, also do they, uh, do they have uh, resources for, uh, for their goals that, or that you might, uh, help them with in that particular scenario where you have somebody with a new baby girl, I would, as a coach, I would talk to that person about really kind of keeping their goals a little bit more modest and not really going after say new capacities, but more maintaining, um, what they've already built. Right. Because when we've, when we've built a capacity up and when we now have more uh, strength for what we've already been doing, then we can really sustain that with even say a third of the training, right? Um, we don't have to train nearly as much to maintain those capacities, but in order to push the envelope and to get to that next level, I think we have to look at, is this optimal for, our current lifestyle for our current demands that we're in. And I just, I mentioned that, I hope that makes that fits in well to this conversation, but it's just a problem that, um, that I see a lot and, um, a lot of really well-intended whys out there, you know, goals that people want to achieve where maybe they, they should be going after that why in a couple of years, but maintaining while things are a little bit more demanding in other areas of their, of their life. Um, so to me, that's a big thing to consider. Yeah. How about a scenario of a runner who is running, you know, four or five times a week and wants to improve their running performance. They, they don't want too much to do with their running technique. They've got ample time available. They have unlimited resources. They have like access to a track or a gym or, um, yeah. What is there, what would be your first go-to that they can implement in order to increase their performance? You know, I'm, I'm going to actually, I think going to something like hill repeats and you've talked about hill repeats before Brody. Um, I think doing something like that for say 30 seconds of good, solid, um, speed work and then taking about three and a half minutes to recover walking back down the hill and really working on a capacity like that is really beneficial anybody can can work towards something like that and yet most runners i kind of think about what um what most runners do which is they do a lot of endurance and 
they're not really doing a whole lot in the other areas. Uh, and if you think about a runner being like a car, you know, and there's, there's of course the chassis is doing all the strength work and improving that person's overall capacities like we've been talking about. And, you know, they're working on, of course, their aerobic capacities and they go out and they do a lot of uh, longer, slower runs, things like that. But, you know, what are they really doing to improve their power? And when you look at something like hill repeats, if you're taking, say, a hill that's seven to 10 degrees somewhere in there, then just to manage that hill, you have to automatically improve a lot of your positioning that you're, that you're utilizing to get up that hill more efficiently, right? So I think if you start off with, let's say, actually starting off with about 15 to 20 seconds where you're just striding up the hill and walking back down, but taking plenty of time to recover. So that's, uh, to me, in the beginning, you want to take even, you know, four minutes to recover between each one. So you really can get the most out of each repetition. So that nervous system really has time to adapt and you're able to really um, get more out of that training. And then as you get more fit, then you can see that you're decreasing the rest time, for example. Um, and I say that because, uh, I will see athletes doing a lot of hill work and stuff like that, but they might be doing say mile, uh, mile repeats up a hill and their form is not any better because they're not going fast enough and the hill isn't actually steep enough and they're not really getting as much out of it as they think they are. Um, but I also like hill repeats because it's concentric based, right? So in other words, running down the hill is going to be a lot more eccentric. It's a lot harder on your body. And there's certainly a place for that, especially if you're going to be racing in, uh, in a race that involves downhill running. But I think that if you're avoiding a lot of the muscle damage that comes with running back down the hill and you're really focused on improving your power economy and your efficiency up the hill, you can start to really get a lot more benefit just in all of your running and just time management wise. It's a great bang for your buck type of session that you can do working up from, let's say, maybe doing a few three to five strides up the hill in 15 to 20 seconds to doing say 10 repeats at 30 seconds, um, you know, and going pretty much all out um, every three minutes and 30 seconds. Right. And that's, that's actually a, that's a session that Bobby McGee does that I, uh, that I've learned from him, but I've seen huge, huge benefits and huge improvements in performance. And again, in running gait, um, because of hill repeats. So that's, that's one I would like to go to with a lot of people I think should, should, and could try that out, Brody. Yeah. Great final tip, because like you said, it's, it's a type of exercise that forces you to get, become better. Like it forces you to, um, put yourself in a better position at, um, like your adaption to hills is only going to make you a better runner on the flats and it triggers the muscular system, the system, the tendons, the cardiovascular system. So yeah, great tip there. Um, Matt, you're a busy man. You have your podcast, the relative run readiness podcast. You have pendolatraining.com. Um, I'll include all your Instagram links and other social media links in the show notes. But um, as we wrap up here, if people want to learn more about you or more about your training and this relative run readiness, um, can you speak 
a bit more about that and where they can go? Oh yeah, sure. Um, well, of course you can go to Pandola Project, and that is our relative run readiness website. And of course you can even just search relative run readiness, but Pandola Project is where we're at. And that has all of our programs on it. And we actually just launched the program a few days ago. So this is perfect timing, Brody. Perfect and, timing. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> I, was, I was really excited to, to, uh, to come on regardless, but, um, but this is good timing for us. So I appreciate it. And what, what we did was we developed programs where you start off with an assessment and it's a self-assessment. I took 10 different movements, things that I've learned over the years, but I did spend about four years as an assistant PT. And we looked at a lot of movements that give us a lot of bang for our buck, but especially for our gait. So we took those movements and we said, okay, if you are less optimal, um, and because really, I don't know if we're ever truly optimal, but if we're less optimal in certain positions or we're not optimal, then we will want to work on specific protocol. And that's how you can find out for yourself, what movements should I be doing? Because we know that we could spend all day just doing movements and not knowing if they're serving us the best way possible. So we made it eight to 12 minutes that you can do your personalized protocol based off of your self-assessment. And then from there, we go into six different phases, taking you from your base work, essentially all the way to championship training. And so um, that's something that we did in a progression so that every athlete, regardless of their history level, can benefit from it. So this is the same thing I was talking about before from my executives and the Olympians that I get to serve today. They've all gone through these progressions. It, it can take anywhere from six months with this program all the way to a year, depending on how quickly you're adapting to the program and uh, of course your experience and things like that. Um, so it's something that you can self-monitor and also I believe it's um, unique because it does give you a lot of different um, self-assessments to look at in that journey. So that's what we just put out and it's uh, $25 a month. So, you know, um, when somebody hires me personally, it's about 2,500 a month. And that's, um, I don't even actually work with any athletes, um, anymore past, uh, just the Olympians were getting ready, uh, for Tokyo. But, um, what I looked at is I would have liked to afford something like this when I was a young athlete. And so to me, this is very affordable, but it also addresses personal protocol and individual needs. So I, I hope people would give that uh, a look and, and give it a try, but um, it's something I've put a lot of time into and, and it's really the last 20 years culminating into a program. So I'm proud of it. Brilliant. And I'll definitely include that in the show notes. Um, it sounds like a, a great resource and um, I'm definitely interested to have a, have a peek at that one. If I've had a, a fair few, um, I guess, feedback from listeners saying, Brody, you're always talking about what's evidence-based, what the research shows, you know, getting researchers on, but what about the coaches? 
Like it doesn't matter if it's evidence-based or not. What are the coaches doing out there that have been working for years and years and working with elite athletes and the real experienced coaches that are doing things that are working? Um, how about we get them on to talk about, you know, their insights. And I think this is one of those episodes, which is perfect for it because um, you're working with a number of athletes, you're working with a number of elite athletes and yeah, what you say, the advice you give, I hold in a very, very high regard. And so I want to thank you for coming on and um, imparting your wisdom, imparting your knowledge and sharing all this information today. Thank you so much, Brody. It's, it's really been an honor and a pleasure. And uh, I hope uh, I can come on again. And I hope you can come on our, um, our, our program again as well. I, the podcast was really well received with you. We got a ton of really great feedback after you were on. So um, I, I really appreciate the partnerships that I've been able to have over the years with uh, who I consider to be experts in their fields. And you're certainly one of them. So thanks for having me. You're a podcast friend for life, mate. You're always welcome. All right. All the best. <laughs> all right. Thank you, Brody. And that concludes another Run Smarter lesson. I hope you walk away from this episode feeling empowered and proud to be a Run Smarter scholar. Because when I think of runners like you who are listening, I think of runners who recognize the power of knowledge, who don't just learn, but implement these lessons who are done with repeating the same injury cycle over and over again, who want to take an educated, active role in their rehab, who are looking for evidence-based, long-term solutions and will not accept problematic quick fixes. And last but not least, who serve a cause bigger than themselves and pass on the right information to other runners who need it. I look forward to bringing you another episode and helping you on your Run Smarter path.